Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Church on the Trail. We are so happy to have you all join us this morning. Now listen closely because we have a few announcements. Our next gatherings for the Grove and Trailblazers is happening on March 5th. This is a night where all men and women are welcome to come together, fellowship, and grow in their relationship with God. The journey to godly manhood and womanhood should not be done alone. So be there Thursday night, March 5th at 6.30, right here at Church on the Trail. Come join us on Sunday, March 8th, to hear an incredible message from Lee McBride. Lee McBride travels the country as an evangelist. He is a storyteller, a comedian, and truly knows how to connect with people on a much deeper level. You're not going to want to miss this, so invite a friend and be here. Once again, thank you so much for joining us this morning. If you have any more questions about events coming up, we have our March calendars out of the Connections Desk, or you can check out the Black Wall. We hope you enjoy the message. My name's Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the uh, pastors on the staff at Church on the Trail. I'm so happy that y'all are here. Thrilled that, that God got you out this morning um, in the cold, but at least there was no rain. It's like enough rain. Yesterday was sunny. Hopefully today will be nice as well. Hey, if this is your first time here, we want to get one of these in your hands. Um, if, or if you've never gotten one of these in your hands, every Sunday we do this. It just gives you some DNA, the DNA of our church and kind of who we are and where we stand on this or that and some of the ministries. So if, you'd, if, you, if you want one of these, just if you'll raise your hand, let us know, and, and uh, Susan and Rhonda will get one in your hands. Um, I want to tell you, too, if it is your first time here or if you have never um, filled a connection card out, there's a connection card inside one of those things, one of those welcome kits, but there's also one in the seat back in front of you. We would love for you to fill that out. Just let us know that you were here, give us your kind of your contact information, but we're not going to tackle you in the parking lot or anything. But hey, look, we are in um, week two of a series that we're calling, the name of the series is When God Doesn't. And what we're doing here is we're walking through the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Habakkuk is in the Old Testament. It's the left side of your Bible. Habakkuk is the 35th book in the Old Testament. It's a teeny little uh, book. It's five books back from the beginning of the New Testament. So I just kind of narrowed down where exactly Habakkuk is in there. And so we're walking through that, uh, this book. And Habakkuk's book, this prophecy, it's a book of prophecy, but it is really a poem. It's really a poem of lament, L-A-M-E-N-T. But well, what is a lament? The dictionary says that lament, a lament is a passionate expression of grief or of sorrow. And that's what Habakkuk is. In the first part, in the first part of the book, where we began last week, in the first part of the book, um, there, uh, Habakkuk throws out two kind of complaints uh, to, to God. God responds to them. This is the first couple of chapters uh, of the book. Last week, we walked through the first one of those in the first four verses of chapter 1, we walk through that first kind of complaint. <clears throat> and I say, uh, Habakkuk, it's like he's bringing this to God's attention. And I say that almost jokingly, like as if God needs us to let him know what's going on. That's kind of the way Habakkuk did this. A anyway, this first complaint, this first dart sort of that Habakkuk throws at the Lord is how long, he's, he's, this is what we talked about last week, how long, God, are you going to let all this wickedness, all this corruption all this strife, how long are you going to let that go on uh, in Judah? And he, and he also, he says, why are you, like he's crying out to the Lord, why are you just sitting back 
and watching and just letting all this stuff go. So that's that beginning, those first four verses. Today we're going to look at, at from verse 5 all the way through to the first verse of chapter 2. And in this passage, this is where the Lord breaks the silence that Habakkuk was complaining about in those first four verses. I kind of expected uh, God to let Habakkuk have it, like to, for even questioning him. For even questioning him, I thought that God was going to kind of let Habakkuk have it a little bit. And yeah, I know last week, if you were here last week, I said that we should bring everything that we got to the Lord and bring it to him raw and bring it to him unedited. But I still, and that is true, absolutely, but I still kind of thought that God was going to hammer Habakkuk even just a little bit. But the Lord doesn't do that. He doesn't rebuke him for the complaint that he lodged at the beginning. In fact, God doesn't really, he doesn't even dispute the accuracy of the facts as Habakkuk laid out those facts in those first four verses. In fact, God agreed that the corruption that Habakkuk was talking about, the corruption going on in Judah, the Lord agreed that it was horrific, that it was terrible. Y'all, here's the deal. God's plan, God's deal, any demonstration of God's power, it does not will not, and has never um, followed any sort of a man-made design or some man-made program. We don't get to design that stuff. God is sovereign. If you got in your worship guide, that is probably the first fill in the blank. God is sovereign. Well, sovereign's a churchy word. What does sovereign mean? Sovereign means that he is king, he is the supreme ruler, and he is the lawgiver over all of the universe. He responds to prayer at the time and in the manner that he deems is best. He's the one that gets to decide when and how he responds. He and he alone, don't miss this now, he and he alone decides when and how to respond. We as believers, we as Christians need to stop thinking about prayer or fasting or worship or good works or serving, any of those things, we got to stop thinking of those things as tools that we can somehow twist God's arm behind his back and force him to follow our agenda or our schedule. We got to simply just trust that if we're a believer, if we're, if we're a Christian, that he's got it, that he's kind of got it all under control and he is going to do things, he's going to use things, all things, According to his will and according to his wisdom and according to his foresight, he's going to take all of this stuff, all of these ingredients, and he's going to stir it all up, and he is going to make something awesome out of it. Now, Susan doesn't do this often. My wife, Susan. I heard somebody say, oh, gosh, here it comes. She doesn't do it often, but one of the things that I love for her to cook, and it's usually around Thanksgiving time, is a red velvet cake. It's an old family recipe that she's got, and it's on this decrepit, tattered old index card. I don't know how old that index card is. It's got to be 50 years old. Is that old? Yeah. Um, the cake, though, is unbelievable. I mean, it is so good. It'll make you slap somebody. It's so good. She gets out. That's a southern idiom. Make you slap somebody. It's so good. But she gets out the shortening, right? She gets out the shortening. But if I tried to eat shortening, by itself, it would make me sick, y'all. It's nasty alone. But she throws that into the mixer. 
Then she gets out some sugar. Now, I like me some sugar, but if I were to eat a cup and a half of sugar all by itself, it would make me sick. But she takes that sugar, y'all, and she throws that sugar into the mixer. <clears throat> she gets out the flour, and guess what? I ain't fixing to eat flour all by itself either. It's nasty, but she throws that in the mixer. And she takes a little of this, and she takes a little of that. She takes some eggs. She takes some buttermilk. She takes some vanilla. She takes vinegar. I said vinegar. Did y'all know vinegar is in red velvet cake? And I do drink vinegar every day. You should drink vinegar. It's good for you. But she takes the vinegar. She takes cocoa. She takes a little bit of salt. All of that stuff gets dumped into that mixer, right? And she turns the mixer on. And then all of a sudden, those independent ingredients that were kind of nasty all by themselves are mixed up and they're blended up together one with another. And, and, and then you get this gooey, pasty substance that's called what? Batter. Batter. Right. Now, the batter is a lot better than the independent ingredients, but even the batter, as good as it is, it's not good enough, although I will lick me some, you know, the edge of the bowl, but I'm not going to eat the whole bowl worth of batter. But then she takes that batter, right, and she pours that batter into a cake pan, and she puts that cake pan into the fire. And now all of a sudden, the batter that was in a cool, comfortable little environment, not hurting anything, it was kind of cool and comfortable. She takes that and she puts it in the 375 degree fire minute after minute after minute. And if that batter could talk, if you could ask the batter, I guarantee you the batter would beg to be taken out of that fire because it's hot in there, right? However, what the batter would need to know if the batter could talk to you and you could talk back to the batter is that it's not simply being cooked for the sake of being cooked. That batter is being recreated and it's being shaped and it's being remade into something else. The master chef has something else in mind, right? Susan's goal is to take all those different ingredients and make something beautiful and awesome out of them. And I tell you, when that puppy comes out the oven, I could be way across the house and I can smell it from way back in our master uh, bedroom closet because it is so good. And then she puts this cream cheese icing on it, y'all. It is amazing. It is so good. God is not just cooking us when we feel the heat. He's not raising the temperature of our circumstances to make us suffer. He is up to something. He's shaping us and he's molding us into what he wants us to be. He's taking all the ingredients of our lives and he's making something out of it. And y'all, you have got to know that God uses our problems. God uses our disappointments God uses our pain. you got to know that. you got to know that he will take our loneliness and he will do something and make something out of it. you got to know and you got to believe that he will take the biopsy report that comes back and he will do something with it. Any pain, any suffering for a believer, he is going to use that and he's going to shape it and he's going to mold it. And we know these things, y'all. We know them not because we can prove them. Not because I can write down on a piece of paper and prove this, but we believe it because we know Him. We, got, we talked about this a little bit last week. We got to believe that He really, really is our loving Heavenly Father. We got to believe that for a Christian, that He ultimately will work all things together for good according to His will. We got to know that. So if verses 1 through 4 in chapter 1 or Habakkuk's first complaint, that he, and he's talking about the circumstances in Judah, the heat in Judah that's been turned up, 
let's look at what God's response is, which begins in verse 5. Now, first four verses, it's Habakkuk. Verse 5 is the Lord's beginning to, to respond. He says, look. He begins with the word look. Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Ra'ah is the Hebrew word. And it's often translated behold uh, in the Bible. It almost always introduces something unexpected or something that is even shocking. And so whether people realize it or not, whether Habakkuk realized it or not, God is behind the scenes of history straightening out all of the different messes that you and I caused. And so in here the Lord is saying, those of you who might want to complain about my lack of activity, about you think I'm not doing anything, I want you to look among the nations is what he says. Look among the nations. And so God's means of punishment here is on the international horizon somewhere. And so it really is like only God's mind in his wisdom could design a plan that would address this rampant conflict, this rampant corruption in Judah by doing something, performing some work among the nations. And so he says, look, the Lord says, Habakkuk, look and see and be blown away. He said, you would not even believe it if I told you what I'm up to. He says, I'm doing a work in your days. I'm doing a work in your days, he says. So Christians in every generation, which includes our generation, we have got to hear and we got to understand God's words here. I'm doing a work in your days, in the middle of the chaos, y'all, in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of the disappointment, in the middle of whatever, God says, I'm working on it, I got it. That's what God tells Habakkuk, and that's what God is telling me and you. And it is not just that God worked simply in the past, although he did work in the past. It's not just that God will work in the future, although he will work in the future. But it's that he is working right now, in the presence Excuse me, in the present, he is working right now. So Habakkuk's accusation that he makes uh, here in the beginning of of chapter 1 of God just sitting back and doing nothing is just simply incorrect. Y'all, if you you accuse God of just sitting back and doing nothing and not answering and not, and what God, why me, uh, that's not what he's doing. It's just simply incorrect. The Lord's answer to the prophet is as true today in 2020 as it was in Habakkuk's time and whether or not we have eyes to see it or ears to hear it is a whole nother thing the reality is that God is working in 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 wondrous and in marvelous sorts of ways so starting in verse 6 look at verse 6 for Habakkuk God's response is shocking it's very shocking look at verse 6 for behold I'm raising up the Chaldeans that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces are, are forward. They gather captives like the sand. At kings they scoff. And at rulers they laugh, ha ha. They laugh at every fortress. They, they, they pile up the earth and they take it. And then, verse 17, and then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Their own might, their own strength is their God. 
And so God reveals in these five or six verses his plan. Habakkuk whines, complains. God responds and says, here's the deal. So God says, check this out. He says, I've been getting these Chaldeans who are really ultimately the Babylonians. I've been getting them ready for it. And you know what? They don't even know. They don't even realize what I'm getting them ready for. But this plan began before time began. History, history tells us that by this time, which was probably about 605 B.C., that, uh, that mastery of the world was in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the biggest and baddest of the Chaldean rulers. And so God, in, this, in, in, in God's response, he's pretty explicit about the who and the how he would bring this judgment on Judah. He raises up kings and he brings them down. I said a few minutes ago that God is sovereign. We talked about what sovereign was. He's sovereign uh, over the entire universe. Well, then it stands to reason that he's sovereign over all nations. And that would include the Chaldeans as well. In his wisdom, God, in his wisdom, he was getting ready to disperse his people, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the Israelites. God was getting ready to disperse them among the nations. Well, why is he doing that? So that they could tell and bear witness of who he is to their captors. So he's getting ready to disperse his people among the nations, which was really part of the grand preparation, the Lord's grand preparation for the coming about 600-ish years later of the promised one, for the coming of Jesus Christ in the fullness of time, Paul wrote, in the fullness of time Christ came. But the timing now was that this spreading of the knowledge of the one true God coincided with the need to discipline his covenant people. Y'all do understand that God's people sometimes need to be disciplined, right? So in these verses, God describes who and how, and his description is vivid. The Chaldeans were a godless, wicked, evil, violent nation. He calls them in these verses bitter and hasty. He calls them dreaded and fearsome. First, the focus is on their inventory. Then it is on their cavalry, and then it's finally it's on their leader. And the Chaldeans, the text says, would march through the breadth of the earth. And that is imagery of an army, an evil, violent, nasty army that like lightning recklessly wreaks havoc across in all directions, right? Uh, quickly just kind of devouring up the folks that are in their path and those folks have no time to escape. The Chaldeans under Nebuchadnezzar had the boldness really y'all to take on the entire world. They were all about conquest. Nineveh fell to them in 612 BC. Six or seven years later, Pharaoh was crushed by them in 605 BC. In 586, Jerusalem was destroyed, which is after this prophecy. Nebuchadnezzar, even 20 years later, invaded Egypt. Through all these conquests, verse 6 said they would come to seize dwellings not their own. They plundered everything. They raped the land. They raped the women. They take captives. The description that God paints in these verses of what's coming is not good. Their horses are fierce. They come for violence, the text says. They relentlessly press forward. They never look back. And I had this image in my mind as I'm reading this this week of this dark, 
Lord Nebuchadnezzar, this dark, evil ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, where, where this, he's firing up this massive, evil army that irresistibly, that inevitably, that, that uninterruptedly is, is getting ready and then moving forward uh, relentlessly towards God's people. And I want you to look at the screen. This is kind of this image that I had in my mind. Swear, y'all, in my jacked-up kind of mind, it's like I, I have, like that seems to me the impression, right, that God put in Habakkuk's mind that that was what was looming on the horizon, and 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 Israel didn't even know it. That was what's looming on the horizon for them, and the Chaldeans didn't even know what they were being raised up for. None of nobody really knew that God's sovereignty was at work in history. So. So far in this book, we have got Habakkuk asking how long, and God responds, not that long. And the prophet asks, why is there no justice on the earth? And the Lord responds, my vengeance is swift and terrible, and it will fall even on my own covenant people. So you have uh, uh, the prophet's first lament, and then the Lord's response. And now Habakkuk lodges his second complaint, starting in verse 12. He says, are you not from, he's talking to God now, Habakkuk, he says, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, talking about the Chaldeans, you've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of pure, you God, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make, you, he says, you God, make mankind like the fish of the sea. Like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them, he, the Chaldeans, he's talking about the Chaldeans. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? This is hard stuff, like when you read this. I want to try to simplify it maybe a little bit. I had to, it's just difficult. Habakkuk is a difficult text. But if the first, uh, the first complaint is focused on God, the first complaint in the first four verses... Is focused on God just sitting around and doing nothing in the face of the apparent triumph of evil in society. Then the second complaint is all about God's actions, what God is planning to do. So not only do believers, not only do me and you, want, to, uh, want God to do something about evil, 
we want him to do it our way. We want to dictate to him, to God, what it is that he would do about it. Very often, we want the Lord, we want to set the agenda, we want to be in control, and we want him to do what we want him to do. Starting in verse 12, Habakkuk kind of gets a little bold. At the beginning, he was kind of cautious, but, but now he is actually challenging God's intention to punish Judah using this wicked nation. But he starts out in verse 12 with a rhetorical question so that we're on the same page. Let me just tell you quickly, a rhetorical question is a question that's asked in order to create a dramatic effect or, or, or to just um, to make a point, not necessarily rather to get an answer. So he starts out, Habakkuk starts out in verse 12, are you, he's talking to God, are you not from everlasting? You know, the beginning and the end of all at the same time, God, you're ever present. You're not bound by time. He goes on and he says, oh Lord, my God, my Holy One. So he doesn't just stop at Yahweh, Lord. Habakkuk makes it personal. He says, uh, Ani Elohim. In Hebrew, that's my God, Ani Elohim. And he goes on and he characterizes God as Ani HaKodesh. That is my Holy One, my Lord, my Holy One. And y'all, it is God's holiness that provides the very basis that we can come to him for help. It's his holiness that does that. David in Psalm 22, talking, crying out to God, he says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, to you our fathers trusted, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. So Habakkuk is like, because of God, because you are God, because of your character, the prophet Habakkuk and the Israel that he represents shall not die. Verse 12 says shall not die. In other words, because God is just and Judah is his people, his covenant people, Habakkuk has concluded that God, that God will not allow Nebuchadnezzar to wipe all the people out. And it sort of looks like Habakkuk is trying to convince himself of that, that God's character will prevent him from using these wicked men, these wicked Chaldeans, to bring judgment on Judah right in the face of God has just told him that they're coming. He just, God just told him that they're coming for that very purpose. And the last part of verse 12 says, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. It's like Habakkuk is saying, I know that you're not going to let us get totally wiped out. But it seems like you're going to use these people to punish us and to judge us. And I don't think that it's the announcement uh, from God to Habakkuk. I don't think it's the announcement of the punishment that got all up under Habakkuk's skin. I don't think that's what it is. I think Habakkuk's real complaint is that how can a holy God use such wicked people to accomplish his purposes? Habakkuk himself said God's eyes are pure. He, he's saying to God, you can only look with favor on things that are pure. The guy's saying, God, you can't bear to gaze on evil or on perverseness. And that being the case, how can you, God, just look on these traitors? How can you look on these traitors with favor? How can God remain silent, he says, when the wicked swallow up the man that's more righteous than he? Habakkuk knew history, y'all. He ain't dumb. In the past, God had swallowed up the wicked on behalf of Israel. He'd swallowed up the wicked on behalf of his covenant people. 
Now God's people face the prospect of being swallowed up by their enemies. And Habakkuk is saying that, that the Jews, as, as bad as they might have been, by comparison, are way better than the Chaldeans. So the conundrum for him is twofold, probably. He thinks that this impending devastation uh, by these wicked, this wicked nation, he thinks that it is way out of line. He thinks that the, the, the punishment is way disproportionate to the sin. Y'all, have you ever felt like your punishment way, was way out of line with what the sin was? Have you ever gotten punished for something and thought, oh my gosh, that was just like getting put in a body cast on a band-aid? Y'all, that's part of Habakkuk's deal, number one. Number two, he can't imagine that God would use an agent to do his bidding that is way more wicked than the very people that are being punished. How could he do this? He said, Habakkuk's like, it's not fair. It's not fair. And Habakkuk emphasizes three characteristics of the Chaldeans that in his mind made it impossible for God to use them. Number one, it was their ruthlessness. Habakkuk argues that if God, if you move ahead with this plan, that you would be treating men like a bucket of fish. You'd be dehuman, uh, dehumanizing men. Verse 14, what does he say? He says, you make mankind to God. He's accusing him. You, your hands are in this. It's your fault. That is what he is saying to God. So sending, if you send, <clears throat> if you send these men to punish us, um, God was going to be directly involved in the atrocities. And that's a strong accusation, number one. Number two, he talks about their brutality. Verse 15 says that each of the Chaldeans comes at captives with a hook in their hand. Historically, the Chaldean people had a custom of literally driving a hook in the bottom lip of the people that they took captive. Long lines of captives that, that Nebuchadnezzar took are in drawings that we found in Mesopotamia with a hook driven down through their bottom lip, strung single file to each one. You hope nobody sneezes. They're strung up, and we've seen pictures of that. And so that, when, when Habakkuk is saying that, he knows that that is what those people do. So their brutality. They, these people, uh, <clears throat> the Chaldeans, they, they bragged about and boasted about their nastiness. They gloated and they publicized the misery that they would inflict on people. They wanted it known that if they were coming, that all hell was going to break loose. How is it that God would allow this to happen to anybody, much less his own covenant people? Number two. Number three is their relentlessness. Verse 17, Habakkuk asks sort of another rhetorical question. Is he then to keep on emptying his net, he being Nebuchadnezzar, and mercilessly killing nations forever? And this is this image of them sweeping up a bunch of people and then running over and dumping the net out of all the people they took captive and going and just doing it again. So whole nations are going to be victims of their cruelty, of their brutality. Would God allow them to just keep doing that over and over again, sweeping up nations? Would God permit the slaughter of multiple nations to just continue on indefinitely? Habakkuk is like, it just can't be. And then all of a sudden, he hits the pause button. It's crazy. At the end of chapter 1, it looks like he just hits the pause button. It, 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 and the text says, and Habakkuk is saying, it's like he folds his arm and says, 
I done made my case. Lord, that's in your court. What you going to do? What you going to say? Verse 1 of chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watch post. This is Habakkuk still talking. I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk is now planted himself on watch. He is waiting to hear from God. And so here stands the expectant prophet. He expects an answer. In fact, he knows that he's going to get an answer, and he's standing watch, and he's going to wait. He's just going to wait until he gets an answer. And so we look at all of this, all of chapter 1, and say, what, um, what do we get from that? Like, like, what are the takeaways? And I think there's two takeaways, and then we're going to wrap this up. Two major takeaways from this, this difficult text. Number one is this, be okay waiting on the Lord. Be okay. Like, be okay waiting on Him. The Bible tells us many times and in many, many different ways to wait on the Lord, to wait for the Lord. There is a time for this, y'all, and there's a time for that, and there's a time for dumping it at His feet, and there's a time for whining, there's a time for begging, there's a time for crying out, yada, yada, yada. And then there's a time to just stop, like just stop and listen and be quiet and let God do the thing he does. Just be quiet and just let him do his thing. A mature Christian, a mature believer will display patience and perseverance in the wait. They'll be willing to wait and listen and, 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 and display perseverance and patience. William Carey, who was a missionary in India, it took him seven years, seven years to baptize his first convert. Adoniram Judson, who was a missionary in uh, Burma, it took him seven years to lead the first person to Christ. Somebody do the math. How many days in a year? 360, what's 365 times seven? That's a lot of days. Robert Morrison, first Protestant missionary in China, Seven years before the first Chinese convert. Robert Moffat, who was an African missionary, he declared that he waited seven years to see the first evident movement of the Holy Spirit in Bequanaland. Anybody ever, I hope I pronounced that right, anybody ever heard of Bequanaland? It took him seven years to see the Holy Spirit move. It took Henry Richards, who was a missionary on the Congo, seven years before the first native said yes. Seven years these men worked tirelessly trusting that God was doing stuff. They didn't see the fruit of that for seven years. But at the end of the day, God used those men to lead thousands and thousands of people to Christ. And they were okay waiting on God. I heard about a couple who went to the airport to catch their flight to L.A., they get to the gate, and they're told by the gate agent to wait over there on board, to, to board. And so they made their way to their spot in the waiting area, and they took a seat, and they were put over there. They didn't know why they were put over there. They had no idea. The boss lady at the counter said, go over there, and they went over there. They did what they were told. People started boarding, boarding and then even more people are boarding the plane. Time passed. This couple's getting pretty frustrated, right? They're waiting, and they don't know why they're waiting. They have no idea. After a while, they're ticked. By now, they're ticked. 
in their mind, Delta's treatment of them was unfair and it was pitiful. And they're like questioning everything, making them wait with no explanation and no time frame. You just want us to go sit over there. Now, everybody else had boarded except for them. And they were going to be the very last ones to board. And all kinds of stuff is going through this couple's mind. What is the deal? This ain't right. This ain't fair. We get to L.A., I am going to give them a piece of my mind and I'm going to raise some cane. And finally, everybody else had boarded that plane and their names were called aboard. And the couple walks down the jetway and they pull out their, uh, their boarding pass, come to realize unbeknownst to them that they'd been upgraded to first class. All of a sudden... Their sorrow became joy and their sadness became elation and they skipped their way to their little big seats in first class. Here's what they realized. Sometimes, y'all, you just got to be okay in the wait. You got to be okay in the wait, number one. Number two is this. God's ways are not our ways. They're not. It is a dangerous and it is a foolish thing to anticipate how God will act in the circumstances of life. It is dangerous and it is foolish to try to predict God. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah 55 in verse 8 says, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways. You know what God's way is? The gospel is God's way. The gospel is God's way. The whole gospel. The true, real gospel. And it sounds simple, but ultimately, God's plan from, from before time was to redeem sinners. And this was before sin even entered the world. This was before there was a sinner. Like, that blows my mind to even think about it. Before there was even people, his plan was re to redeem sinful people. So when God works all things together for those that love him and are called according to his purpose, it is all, all, all about Jesus. It is all, all, all about the cross. Y'all, his wisdom, his plan, his purposes, his thought. His ways, His timing, all of that is all about Jesus. It is all about leading people into a saving relationship with Him. John Flavel, raise your hand if you've ever heard of John Flavel. I bet you hadn't. He was a pastor, a preacher in England in the 17th century. One Sunday morning, he's, he's just getting to church before he preaches, and Flavel prayed. He felt overcome with the Holy Spirit. He prayed on his knees fervently, he said, that somebody that day would be saved in that church through the preaching of the Word of God. And when he finished, there was no evidence that anybody had made Jesus their leader and their forgiver that day. I know that's John Flavel, another man named Luke Short. I don't even imagine any of y'all heard of Luke Short. He grew up in England, but he came to the United States to start a new life, and he was a farmer in Massachusetts, I think, and he reached his 100th birthday, still kicking, still screaming, he's 100 years old, but he was not a believer. He had never said yes to the Lord's offer. One day, 100-year-old, 100 101, I think at the time, uh, Luke Short sitting on his uh, front porch, and he's looking out at his fields because he was a farmer, and he's reflecting on his long life, you know, he's dude's 100 years old, 
and he recalled a sermon that he had heard as a boy in England before he sailed to America. And right there on his front porch, the Lord saved him through a sermon that John Flavel had preached 85 years earlier. And by that day, Flavel had been dead for 50 years. But God answered his prayer that he prayed on that Sunday morning that someone would be saved through the preaching of the Word. Y'all, you just have to know that like we are called to be obedient. We are called to do what He calls us to do. Every now and again, maybe, maybe we get to see the fruit. Maybe. But most of the time, I don't think we do. You know, I go in that closet every Sunday morning and I pray for the people that come in here and sit their hineys in one of those seats. That, that the Lord would get me out of the way and that He would say what He wants to say and that somebody would be saved through the preaching of the Word every single Sunday. Sometimes we see evidence of that, sometimes we don't, right? But it is a humbling thing when you realize that to truly trust Him, that you got to surrender. you got to deny yourself. The major component of the gospel is surrender and deny self. you got to relinquish what? Control. Y'all, control. We want to control everything. We want to pray for God's help and then tell God how to help us. Are you kidding me? He doesn't need our help. We pray for Him to help us. Let Him in His timing, in His wisdom, in His thoughts, He will do it however He deems best, right? you got to say, Lord, I'm willing to wait on Your timing. You know better than what I need than I know what I need. Your ways are a billion times better than mine. Your thoughts are a billion times bigger and better than mine. And I'm just going to trust in you. The only way that you can trust in him is by denying yourself. It's just like the only way to relinquish. It's just in the, inherent in the words relinquish control. God knows better. And so the question is, are you going to trust him? Maybe the question is, have you ever trusted him? And if you have never trusted him, don't let the sun go down another time without trusting in Him. Trust in Him today. Simple. Super simple. The gospel's not complicated. I repent of my sin. I believe that He died on that cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And I invite Him to save me. Please, Lord, save me. That's it. That's it. It's not some big, complicated, theological thing. Although it's deep. Right, And if you've never said those words, if you've never believed those words, if you've never confessed those words, let it be today. Y'all, if y'all would close your eyes, bow your heads, and, and I would say, if you have never trusted in the Lord for your salvation, I would love, you can dim the lights too if you can, the, the, I would invite you to the cross. The Lord invites you to the cross. Say these words out loud or to yourself. Lord, today is the day where I repent of my sin. I turn away from it. <clears throat> I turn away from it. And I believe that you died on that cross and that redeemed me. That bought me back. That saved me. Lord, I invite your Holy Spirit to live inside of me the rest of my life. And I will serve you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. And let me tell you, if that, if that just happened to you...
And I want to say again, if you need prayer, our prayer team's in the back. If you want to come down and pray at the cross, whatever that may be, I would invite you to do that. Uh, I would invite you to do that today. If uh, you made a spiritual decision today and you asked the Lord to save you, or if you have been saved and you're at, you want to, to take the God plunge and be baptized, that connection card that's in the seat back in front of you, just fill that out and let us know and give it to one of the people at the, uh, at the connections desk. Let me pray one more time and I'm going to turn it over uh, to our worship team. Lord, we love you today. Lord, we thank you for walking us through uh, at least some of your prophet Habakkuk's writings. <clears throat> Lord, let us always be a church family that is gospel focused. Lord, my prayer is that we would, it would all be about Jesus and the gospel and your work amongst us. Lord, let, let, let the people that hear these words just know that you are there to save them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Lord, I know that there are lots of issues, lots of problems, lots of disappointments and pain in our church family. I know it. I just know it. And Lord, my prayer is that they would relinquish all of that to you and trust that you've got it all under control. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.